welcome to episode 40 of Literary Disco, Things Fall Apart. Today's episode in two parts. We will begin with a bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss, and then we will dive into Chinwe Achebe's first and most widely read novel, Things Fall Apart. I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hello, guys. Hello. Hey there. How are you, sir? I'm great. I'm 10 days away from wedding oh, day. Oh, that's right. Woo! So we should probably let everyone know where that's going to be. Do you, do you, you want to go ahead and release that information now? And the address is... <laughs> Are you worried about helicopters and drones hovering above your wedding and taking photos of me and Julia as we frolic in the greenery? I know. We are very sorry for being so famous. So this will be the, coming up for your wedding, it's going to be like another live literary disco. We should totally record it. I'm already going to be reading Finnegan's Wake for Oh, oh God, I forgot about that. Are we still doing that? (laughs) Are we? we? You're going to still take credit for it? There's literally only four of us reading the entire book, I think, at this point. There are two heroes of our message board on Goodreads, and one guy's name is Kevin, and the other one is Jenna, and they are amazing. Nicole, who we actually went to school with, jumps on every once in a while, and she keeps up. I have been horribly remiss because I've been dealing with wedding planning and shooting a pilot and... Well, you know, Ryder, I don't think that you can have excuses for not taking part in the thing that you created. That's like saying, ah, you know what, I couldn't raise my kid because I (laughs) was out busy having a life. So either you are the champion of Finnegan's Wake and Bake or, you know what, you, you let someone else take over and I think that should be Julia. Because I'm not going to fucking read it. Um, I'm going to start any <laughs> I'm gonna day I'm going to read it. Now. I'm reading. I'm just behind. <laughs> but, you know, my professor keeps emailing me because he's reading the message board. So he keeps sending me emails being like, they're doing great. Tell them to keep going. <laughs> I'm like, well, you can get on there and tell them yourself. <laughs> but he's like, he's like, yeah, they're on a roll. They're doing this right. They totally got that. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, at one point, he's like, you've now entered. You're almost halfway through. You, you're, you're entering, like, the very upper echelon of only certain amount of people have ever made it this far into Finnegan's Oh, my way. God. So... Which is true when you think about it. I mean, it's really, it's a crazy book. And it just doesn't stop being crazy. Well, uh, Ryder, other than not reading Finnegan's Wake, what have you been reading? What what would you like to discuss as your revisit? Well, my revisit is not going to be a book. I'm pulling a Todd, and I am going to discuss songs. Perfect. And I'm going to discuss lyrics. Perfect. Um, So I've been, about a month and a half ago, uh, somebody, uh, one of my good friends texted me and was like, you have to buy this album. I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of these guys. I downloaded it. And, like, it is the craziest album. It is so goddamn good. Um, and the lyrics are insane. It's a band called Typhoon, and the album is called White Lighter. This band is, it's it's really different than the type of lyrics I usually like. So, it's an 11-piece band. Okay, oh, it, well, let me give full disclosure. I've recently been in touch with this band because I mentioned them on Twitter and they have been nice enough to not only connect with me and send me emails, they're going to come to my wedding and play some songs. What? No, no joke because they're a Portland based band and they are fit. So I like, I'm now entering like completely biased zone of like, hopefully actually hanging out and being friendly with these guys. Uh, but First and foremost, I was already going to talk about these lyrics on Literary Disco, so I wanted to go ahead and do that anyway. But yeah, so you guys are going to get to see them at at the wedding. Um, They're amazing. So it's an 11-piece band. Uh, They're one of these huge, like, music collectives in Portland, and... Uh, but the songwriting itself is actually incredibly personal and feels like a singer-songwriter voice, and the lyrics in particular. What am I waiting for? A spell to be cast a to be broken At the very last Some wild ghosts from my past Come to split me wide open oh, If I bandage my eyes Will you press in my hand A small simple token I was born there first You never spoken But it's really different from what I usually listen to. So, like, most of my favorite contemporary lyricists are, like, um, you know, people that write great lines or capture moments or impressions. Like, I, I've been listening to the Cave Singers, which is another Pacific Northwest band that's amazing. Uh, Bonnie there, obviously. And then other times I like writers who are very specific, like, story arcs, like Josh Ritter, who we've talked about. Or Tom Waits kind of falls into both these categories, depending on what type of song he's writing at the moment. 
But this is completely different. These guys are writing anthem style mm. songs, which I usually am not attracted to lyrically. But here's what's crazy about these songs. They they kind of this album is clearly a form of like a, a manifesto of sorts. And it's a really earnest voice. I thought it was safe for me and my own. I began hearing these voices in the dark tone. And they come to me now, though I dismember my phone. They say you wanna hear something that you already know. If it comes from above, well this one comes from below. It says you all sleeping together, but you will die alone. What's so great about these songs is they kind of all follow a very similar pattern over the course of the whole album, which is this, a person feeling complete terror and anxiety at facing death and the realities of like getting older and being an adult and, you know, I, I sort of maybe am projecting onto this, <laughs> this narrator. Maybe. But there's also this sense of, like, having had somewhat of a privileged childhood or having felt protected from these realities because, you know, you're growing up in America and in the world you're in, and now you're facing, like, oh, shit, the world is really harsh. No one's, like, gonna help me. I have to figure this shit out for myself, whether it be, like, how I'm going to survive just normal life or how I'm going to find a love or... But then in the course of the song, uh, the, the background vocals begin like a counterpoint and they develop into an anthem that the entire band is singing by the end of the song and it becomes an incredibly earnest and positive message and it's almost like the entire album becomes this manifesto of like we are all fucked and the only thing that's going to help us is if we love one another and sing together and do positive things which is so like kind of cheesy and hard for me to say with a straight face but this this band earns it and these lyrics earn it It's an amazing album and it's if anybody is a fan of like really good lyrics and uh you know something that has like this manifesto quality to it this sort of sees the day and i love it so much and i just am really happy that they responded to a random tweet that i sent out and now they're coming to play my wedding which is that is pretty amazing that's awesome. yeah well strangely enough in in related news um i want to talk about actually two books about music and and in a way about lyrics but they're sort of related to sort of random communications with 
uh, rock stars you admire. So there's a new book out called Running with Monsters by Bob Forrest, uh, who is the lead singer of Thelonious Monster and then also The Bicycle Thief, um, which were Thelonious Monster was sort of an iconic L.A. punk band that came out of L.A. at the same time as the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Fishbone and Jane's Addiction. So late 80s, early 90s era L.A. Uh, punk music. Um, and then most people know Bob Forrest now because of the show Celebrity Rehab. He was Dr. Drew's assistant on Celebrity Rehab. He's the guy in the horn room, glasses, and the hat. So basically, Bob Forrest was the one guy in all those bands that everyone looked at and said, oh, he's going to be the big star. Thelonious is going to be the big star. And then it ended up being, of course, the Red Hot Chili Peppers became huge, and Jane's Addiction became big, and Fishbone became big in and of itself. And Thelonious Monster fell apart because Bob Forrest was such a terrible addict. Mm. Um, so, so he's sad. got this new book that's out. It is sad, but he, you know, he reclaimed his life, um, and you know, he became a rehab specialist, and he still makes music. And so he's got this memoir out called, called Bob and the Monster, and there was a um, documentary about him that came out um, last year as well that's now out on iTunes and on DVD and whatnot. A friend of mine told me that the book was coming out, and so I, I run this uh, books and author series here in the desert called Arts and Letters, and I contacted him and said on a wild, you know, hair, thinking oh, he'll never want to do this, hey, do you want to come and talk about your book? And he said, sure, I'd love to. So I booked him to do uh, this talk, and I'm very excited. And so uh, then he was, oddly enough, playing a concert at the same week, and so I got to go out to the concert and, and meet him, and he was great. We had a great conversation, and I'm a huge fan of him and his, his songwriting and his lyrics. And I'm reading his book, Bob and the Monster, and I started thinking a lot about these rock and roll memoirs that have really started coming out more recently. So there's the Keith Richards one. Um, there's a Dave Navarro one, Anthony Kiedis, um, there's Patty Smith, Just Kids. Um, so there's been a ton of them lately. Um, and I'm always surprised by how much these rock stars remember that were addicts because of course they were fucked up the entire time. Um, and so I'm, 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 I'm reading this book and I'm really interested in everything that he's talking about because it's also the history of his songwriting in a way, because it talks about all the things that he went through and his addictions, which fed into his songwriting. So it's a, a fascinating book. I'm not all the way through it yet. I'm reading it right now. I recommend it. But it got me also thinking about another book that I did just finish reading called Yes is the Answer, which is a book of essays about prog rock, um, which are these, for those of you who don't know what prog rock is, giant bombastic you know, songs by like Genesis and Yes and Rush and mm. Emerson, Lake and Palmer and all these you know, dinosaur bands of the 70s. And it's a great book put out by Rare Bird, which is a small press, about all these different writers writing about how much they either loved or hated prog rock and its effect on people. And it, it seems to be sort of something that Ryder and I have been talking about a lot lately on the show. Obviously, today, Ryder's talking about it again, about the influence of music on other kinds of art. And so here's just an entire book of people writing about what the music means to them. And the, the best ones are invariably the ones where something traumatic happens. There's a great essay by Tom Juno, who's a writer for um, Esquire, among other things, about a friend of his and him who, you know, used to get high and listen to Genesis a lot and how Peter Gabriel's, you know, coming out of his artistic shell was ran in concert with Tom Juno's, you know, acceptance of life, all this other stuff. But uh, invariably it ends with his friend losing his mind and Genesis, the songs of Genesis and songs of Peter Gabriel being like the touchstone of what drives him into his madness. And it was really sort of a, it's a sad and awful essay, but wow. you know, it, it reminds me always of how music is in a way like um, smell in a way in that it has that oh, unique yeah. ability to take you back to moments um, in a way that TV or movie or books don't. A song or a smell will drive you into, you know, whatever emotion it was you're feeling the first time you heard it or when it became most significant. So like with Ryder, uh, this band Typhoon now is always going to be associated to you <laughs> with this time in your life when you and Alex were about to get married. I know. And That's what, it, it makes, makes you really, perfect it ma because makes it amazing. Like, I'm in the throes of this band right. and this album right now, and I'm, like, listening to it constantly and, like, thinking about the things and the themes and the lyrics. So for them to be, like, coming to 
you know, play a couple songs and like celebrate at the wedding is like, oh my god, that's kind of <laughs> a dream come true. Yeah. And yeah, it'll always be like, you know, this period of my life. You're right. It's great. So I, I just realized that I've been thinking about music more than usual lately too, because of similar stuff. So, um, I have been following closely the Miley Cyrus versus Sinead O'Connor <laughs> um, experience. Um, oh, Jesus. Here we so, go. No, no, no. So this is going to get tangential really quick. So I was thinking about um, Sinead O'Connor, and like once in a while, this thought will cross my mind about the music that I listened to in the 90s when I was a preteen and teenager. And it's just, like, so earnest and sincere and so girl powery. And there was definitely a period in my life where I was, like, embarrassed about that and that, and kind of like, oh, that was so, like, earnest and on the nose. And, uh, you know, like, you know, I still, like, loved who I loved. But since that feud thing happened, I made this giant playlist that's um, Alanis Morissette, No Doubt, Lauren Hill, um, salt and pepper, all these people, like every other song. <laughs> so, salt and pepper. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, TLC. And it's just like, it's all women. And literally, like, every other song is like, you know, about women and how awesome they are and like Ani DeFranco. And it's, it's bringing me back. I just, I love it so much uh, because it's, it brings me back to a place of like sincerity and earnestness that you can only feel when you're 12 to 15 years old. And it's amazing. It's the only thing that's ever launched me back. It's bringing me into memories that I forgot that I had. Um, so I'm, I'm very into this sensation right now as well. All of them, they, they seem to have hit a moment where that is what people wanted to hear. And, you know, like when you think of like, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill coming out now, it would be like, <laughs> I think it would be really strange. It wouldn't work, you know? But would she be willing to get naked on a wrecking ball? That's, that's uh, the question. No, no, that's no. a star. All right. So, um, so I, uh, this weekend is the Hartford Marathon, which I ran last year, and I'm feeling very nostalgic about it. Um, and I'm running the half marathon, and I just, um, I just remembered that I've never talked about, um, the book, there's a book actually that got me into running, um, which last year was my huge hobby of the year. Um, so it's a, a very popular book that I'm sure tons of our listeners have read, but it's also an amazing read. Um, it's called Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. Have either of you guys read it? Uh, does it involve a girl named Wendy on the back of a motorcycle? No. No. Oh, that's a different Born to Run. It's um oh it's it's I wanna die with you Wendy on the streets tonight in an everlasting kiss. Hey I guess this is the Sorry. disco half. Since we officially have disco in our name, I guess we could easily transition into a music. Just totally half music, half literature. Yeah. Oh my god. Anyway. Oh. Um so this book is is amazing. I think you guys would both really like it. So it's a it's partially a memoir. Um it's it's all nonfiction. So it's about this guy who was running um in the traditional American way, which is like he had all kinds of injuries and he did marathons and stuff. And then um he found out about ultra marathoners, which are people that run distances of I think fifty miles or more. Yeah. Well you say ugh so that's what the book's about. So he kind of tracks so obviously very small small pool of people and um, he tracked them down, and he described some of their stories in um, um, such an incredible way. Just like um, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, it has that same sense of, like, huh. these are characters and, like, how they got to this point and how they got into running. Um, but what's really interesting about the, the people is that um, ultramarathons are so long and so difficult that you can't you basically can't have an overly competitive or aggressive attitude to like survive. You have to be relaxed. You have to literally enjoy running for days. Can I ask you a question though? Sure. Would you say that the people like during the daytime sweated out on the streets of a runaway American dream? Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess you could say that. <laughs> uh, but so like, for example, um, one of the people that he finds is this like, a young girl who was a surfer and heard about ultramarathons um, signed up for it and on her first try at ever doing one 
beat the existing record by like four hours and um, oh, ate a pizza like at every 10 miles. An entire pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> now, hold on. I would run 50 miles if every couple, like, ev- like every hour, I got like just a pineapple and Canadian bacon That's what pizza it was. given to me. It was a Hawaiian pizza. You are Perfect. meant to be an I'd ultra totally marathoner. So I totally so am. That's only, apart from um, so, <laughs> all the physical evidence notwithstanding. So that's only half the book, though. The other half is um, um, going to this tribe in Mexico who, like, they there's everyone runs distance and it's all like for fun and there's these big competitions and everyone gets really drunk the night before and then they run a hundred miles. Um, so what the book is, is really about is, um, how to like how in modern culture we've lost the idea that running is something that like our bodies want to do, our brains want to do, and that we're all designed to do. And that for a lot of people running should be very, very enjoyable and that most people go too fast and think of it too competitively. So it's a really good book, hmm. and after reading it, I immediately started running, and now I just love it because I'm a horrible runner, quote, you know, technically, because I'm really slow, um, but I don't mind because I really enjoy being outside and moving around. Um, are, are you of the opinion that the original runners were, were tramps that were born to run, and they're like us in that way? I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep saying lyrics. Sprung from cages on highway wheel fuel injected and stepping out <laughs> over the line. If you're listening to this show and you don't know the lyrics to Born to Run, two things need to happen. You need to go listen to the song. And number two, you need to go move to fucking Russia, okay? You need to move to Russia because your parents were communists and they didn't teach you. We're in agreement, right? I think it's actually the opposite. It would be probably more communist to say that there's a test you have to pass in order to be an American. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty totalitarian. The government is shut uh, down. All bets are off. You know, who knows anymore? Well, hopefully by the time Hopefully by the time you guys hear this, yeah. I don't have a lot of faith. Me neither. But we'll see. back to Literary Disco. We're going to discuss a classic modern novel that I had never read. Now, you guys had both already read this book, Yes. Right? Yes. Yep. I read it in um, high school. I can see how this is one of those books that gets read a lot in high schools. It was the archetypical African mm-hmm. modern novel. Uh, it was published in 1958. It's Things Fall Apart by Chinwe Achebe. Things Fall Apart is, is the story. Um, it's in three different parts, and the first part is functions just, it's just following Okonkwo's life in his traditional African tribal existence, where he's part of one, he's one member of a tribe that is part of a nine-tribe council, and really there's just a lot of detail spent on, you know, how they worship, how they live, how they survive, the economy, the traditions, the language, Family the life, family structure. And then uh, in part two, um, Okonkwo is ac- exiled for reasons we won't go into complete detail about here. And then in part three, they start to deal with the Christian missionaries moving in. Um, it's still a very short book, even though it's divided into three parts. I thought it was brilliant. What did you guys think revisiting this? There's two things that I think. Number one is that it's impossible to look at this book without knowing it is one of the most acclaimed books of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. You know, it, mm-hmm. it lives on the shoulders of the acclaim that it has received even before you open the pages, which when the yeah. first time I read it, which actually was not that long ago, it's when we were all in graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2007, I hadn't read it. I, I hadn't read it because I thought there's no way it could ever live up to what had been said about it. it it's one of those right. books that, in a way, it's not unlike Moby Dick for me, a book that I feel like I've already read even though I haven't because I've read mm-hmm. so much about it. The first time I read it, I thought there's no way it can stand up to that, and it did. It was absolutely remarkable. The second time I read it, it was even more powerful for me because I've read so much more about Achebe himself and about that time. I've read more post-colonial and colonial literature. And when you look at this book, you have to look at it both in the context of when it was written and then look at that in the context of every book that has come after it. And it's remarkable. It does things in 210 pages or what have you that most books couldn't achieve in 5,000. I think it's 
One of the greatest books I've ever read. Uh, wow, wow. Um, I love this book. I loved it when I read it in high school, and I love it now. And I think I read it at some point in early adulthood. I mean, if you're going to read a classic, I mean, just to throw out something for our listeners here directly, like, if you feel, if you're one of those people who feels like you're behind and there's so many classics, but they're also, like, long and hard to read and you don't know where to start, this is a really good place to start um, because you could, I mean, it's like a four-hour read, really. Right. What I love about it, I mean, there's lots of things, but the language is unbelievable it's so simple and it's so emotional in its simplicity and its lack of certain um interpretations that it just it washes over you it builds a it builds something before you that you don't perceive being built until you've gone through most or all of it um so for me the tone of the novel is i've always loved it i mean i i just I really love this book too. Yay! I guess we're done. We all loved it. <laughs> <laughs> the tone is a the tone is a really interesting point because I I sort of had a hard time figuring that out at first. You know, almost at first it felt like kind of had an almost parable quality to it, and I think maybe that was just something I was bringing to it because it was like, oh, it's oh you no, know, I think life that's in there. the village. That's there. No, it's sure. But no, I it doesn't. I would actually say it has a a, a sense of realism and a, and a, and it's more like. Um, I guess I sort of I, I had given it this because it starts off with like a little bit of story references to storytelling and so I thought maybe it was going to be more of a conscious like folk heroization of our main character and but all of that doesn't really last like that is just the language and the, the culture that he's existing mm-hmm. in and the book itself is absolutely neutral Chinue Achebe himself does not his voice is not one of Okonkwo's people mm-hmm. speaking about like their slaughter, or you know, he's he's objective. He's equally neutral to the the locals as he is to the Christian missionaries that come in. And in other words, there's like such an even brush that he's painting with uh, all of these characters right. and situations. So it doesn't have. It's not like at first I thought it was going to be like, oh, we're going to celebrate these people because I knew going into this because I knew the history of the book, I was like, oh, it's going to be a story of colonialization and, and, and how that, in, you know, that exchange and that awful historical moment. So I was sort of waiting for um, it to be more of like a valorization of the folklore or valorization of the, you know, the natives. And it isn't at all. It's a completely unbiased, beautiful description of two cultures colliding and one obviously has more power than the other and how those two versions of God and life and family and, you know, the ties that bind people together collide in this very specific way with this one character. Uh, And masculinity. I mean, I think that's the central um, theme of, not theme of the book, but it's the point of view with which it operates. So, you know, like I, I had forgotten, um, when I was reading it, it's amazing. Cause the mind kind of glorifies the book after not having read it so long, like back into what you would, what you were saying, Reiner. So I've read it before, but I still was thinking of it as, um, somewhat of a glorification of, of one side over the other. But so I'm like reading along and I'm like, okay, obviously a is the hero. Like it says, over and over in definitely a parable like way mm-hmm. um you know he's a great man he's a great man and then it, him beating the crap out of his wives is woven in slowly at and yet not so heavily handed that you're meant to interpret that as wrong and you're definitely not meant to interpret it as right either because it's it's pulled out in very clear ways. It's not an aside. I mean, there's a couple of big incidents where Okonkwo's violence um, really comes out, but it's all through the lens of what it means to be a man in in his village and then his struggle with what it means to be a man for one of his sons who he perceives as weak and then um, transitions entirely into a new role once the missionaries come in. So um, I think that um, what's great about this book is that it's about society from an individual's perspective and that individuals struggle to hold on to what he believes must be right is highlighted by the neutrality of the book, which doesn't take a side. It only highlights his own confusion 
about what's happening around him. And I think the other one of the the, the big things that, that I took from it this time is the power of embarrassment. You know, Okonkwo, if we're if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, he wants to be a better man because he's embarrassed by the station in life that his father had. And but he he goes about things in sometimes the wrong way and sometimes in the right way. You know, he's he's proud and he's violent and he is driven to succeed because of that sense of embarrassment, irrespective of the fact that while his father is sort of a hapless guy, he's happy. And, and yeah. that dynamic was so brilliant to me. That like makes the whole book because I mean, what you guys are both talking about, the gender dynamics, because the fact that he is, because he's a, he's a conservative, right? right? He's a cultural conservative. Mm-hmm. He's saying, we need to be men. We need to be traditional in the tradition of our fathers. That's what he's saying. He he's very negative about the tradition, for instance, of his mother's, you know, or his mother, and then his father's multiple wives, and then he has multiple wives, and he's very dismissive of the the female uh, uh, lineage completely. But the irony and that that Achibe puts into this book is that his father himself he hated. And he just doesn't respect. Right. So it's like built into the very like first five pages that you have a guy convinced of the gender dynamics of the culture that he's a part of, but then rejects the individual who best represents those dynamics. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, his father was completely content. So it's like already he's in a complete, yeah, he's in the complete conversation with his culture and, and he, he's torn about mm-hmm. it. And that's just a brilliant way to do it because, you know, anybody, I, I feel like so many other you know, people that want to write about this, you know, colonial encounter, which is such a difficult thing to write effectively about. Um, but I feel like so often it's like you fall into the habit of, you know, what is called the noble savage tradition, which is, right, the, like, perfect, uh, you know, even if you, you were trying to say that what, you know, the colonial takeover did was so awful and horrible in a specific country, you end up oversimplifying the people that are there and taking away their own complexity and violence in order to make this sort of, you know, this philosophical point and that right away within the first 10 pages when i realized that that was what was going on i was like i am so on board (laughs) with this character and this this dynamic because he's 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 torn himself about how to relate to his own culture because his father didn't represent the values of that culture and he wants to so badly but he has to disown his own father in so many ways in order to do it's and and his father you know everything that a conquo stands for. I mean, he becomes, you know, the leader, basically, of the tribe, and, you know, he, he has a title and, and power, and all, it's all the things that his father didn't need for happiness, right. or all the things that he exactly. does need. But he, even still, neither man ends up having a lot of room for personal warmth in their lives. <laughs> you know, the, 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 for, you know, Conquest's case, the, the love that he ends up feeling for another boy who's not his son that he receives as payment, basically, for a murder that's taken place. It's a complicated turn of events. But he's surprised by his own emotional feelings for this boy because he doesn't know how to feel. But it goes back, again, to what you are talking about a moment ago, Ryder, about the, this idea of the noble savage. And this is the book that changed that ideal. You know, it takes yeah. Heart of Darkness and it flips it on its head. And then everything that's come after that, this book you know, has to has to deal with the, the truth that it should be found in this first book. I mean, the, this book is has been read by millions and millions of people, not just because it's a really great book, because it's the first book of its kind. And so and that sort of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, which is that I think it's for maybe a reader that's coming into this book for the first time at, say, age 18 or 19 or something, your English teacher is probably telling you, all right, I want you to look at the themes and the motifs and all this, and this stands for this, and that stands for that. But at the end of the day, it's just a great novel about society and also about paternalism in family on top of everything else about Africa and colonization. There's also some really interesting stuff in there about um, when the missionaries do come in. One thing that's dealt with really well is a um, like careful and delicate demonstration of how Christianity and its principles of forgiveness might have spread within these communities and who yes. who first needs Christianity to exist. You know, who has been outcast or ostracized? Right. Which traditions right. are so emotionally painful that people are desperate to have them changed? Um, so, for example, it's, it's just mentioned several times. It's not a big plot point, but um, um, in Okonkwo's 
world, uh, in his cult- from his cultural viewpoint, twins are considered evil. So if you have twins, you have to leave them in the woods to die, both of them. So some of the first uh, converts to Christianity are mothers who don't want a, a mother specifically who has had so many pairs of twins that she doesn't want to leave her children to die anymore. So, I mean, it's those kind of details that are, are so well done and make so much sense that makes it feel balanced. Um, like you see why these, why and how these two cultures would start to touch in a positive way. I think the interesting thing with the, with the missionaries, well, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things with the missionaries, but what a chibi does is at first he plays them on the page as though they are simpering fools so mm-hmm. that we view them absurdly. But then what happens is these simpering fools begin to fundamentally alter the civilization of Nigeria. And you realize that what we view through the narrative as, oh, these, these idiots, these fools have a plan, you know, that they are, they are doing something systematically and it, mm-hmm. that sort of um, what might on the page appear to be um, benign evil or uh, benign desire for this manifest destiny of its own kind becomes, you know, something extraordinarily destructive, particularly when Akonko's son becomes a Christian himself. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a series of events that I think grows in its darkness for the reader as the, the further you go in the book. Yeah, and um, that leads me to the one passage that I bookmarked that I wanted to read, which is, um, so uh, the missionaries are, are there and everyone kind of thinks they're stupid, and, but they're not, they don't feel threatened, and then suddenly like the threat is rising. Um, so there's this great conversation where they're talking about another village that had been taken over, and Okonkwo says, um, those men of Abeme were fools. They were fools, said Okonkwo after a pause. They had been warned that danger was ahead. They should have armed themselves with their guns and their machetes even when they went to market. They have paid for their foolishness, said Obaikira. But I am greatly afraid. We have heard stories about white men who made the powerful guns and the strong drinks and took slaves away across the seas, but no one thought the stories were true. There is no story that is not true, said Uchendo. The world has no end, and what is good among one people is an abomination with others. We have albinos above among us. Do you not think that they came to our clan by mistake, that they have strayed from their way to a land where everybody is like them? So I, I just love that passage of mm-hmm. there is no story is not true. You know, that, that every rumor has some piece of truth in it or universal warning within it. There, there's a passage that's not too far from that in the book as well that uh, I printed out here. There, are, there were many men and women in Yomofia who did not feel as strongly as Akonkwa about the, about the new dispensation. The white man had indeed brought a lunatic religion, but he had also built a trading store, and for the first time palm oil and kernel became things of great price, and much money flowed into Eumophia. And even in the matter of religion, there was a growing feeling that there might be something in it after all, something vaguely akin to method and the overwhelming madness. And I, I can't help, as a reader, draw parallels between every other form of colonization that goes on, whether it be ourselves in Iraq or, um, you know, mm-hmm. American or the English coming to America and trying to turn the Indians into Christians, even in California, as, as we talked about with the missions, history that only Ryder and I know about. Um, or, or even when you think about when after World War II, when the Americans came in and occupied Japan and what had been the people that the Japanese were fighting against, their occupiers, their, their, their enemies became their occupiers, became their protectors. Um, and this, this unique form of civilization that keeps going after strife. You know, oh, you know what, we don't like these people, but they built us a store, and there's money now. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, a point that you see in literature literally from the beginning of time about how colonization or warring factions what happens excuse me to the losers um afterwards you, even in a book like austerlitz by uh wg Seabold, it, it it's a similar sort of story about what people can and won't accept in the name of 
maybe a little bit of prosperity. No, it's a huge, I mean, it's a huge subject. And, and what's crazy is, of course, that it still goes on on a daily basis, as even, you know, especially in Africa. Um, I guess in a way, like I, I starting this book, I felt a little bit like what you were describing, Todd, where there's almost like an obligatory sense mm-hmm. to a book like this. You know, it's like, oh, well, of course, there had to be a book written that was about this, you know, particular time and place and this kind of encounter that what you know gave a better perspective than what we had in our english literature tradition before that but i do think it animates something very well and and i i have to say like even though i've read a lot of post-colonial theory and post-colonial literature issues driven stuff um i had never read this book and um it it really it still holds up um i i I think it could have been longer, and I think it could have had more humor. I'm surprised that it wasn't. I'm serious. Well, I'm serious. I don't know if it's terribly, you know, it's not really set up for comedy, you know, the colonization well, of, but, the, of the African nation. But that's, but I'm not saying, I'm, I, I think everything should have a pinch of humor in it, you know, and this book started to feel like series of tragedy after series of tragedy after series of tragedy, which is more of a sort of call to attention i think that where it succeeds the best is in the nuance of its characters in the fact that it has such a flawed central character which was just a brilliant choice and then that that flawed central character is struggling with issues that still feel universal and and that everybody is you know like you know the missionaries are not just reduced to evil faceless meaningless sort of people it's they're they're people dealing with an economic and religious issue that they're trying to contend with so there's still a lot going on but i i guess i just think that nowadays were this book to be written there would be a little bit there would be more i wasn't like it was short enough that i didn't it wasn't tedious but i certainly wasn't like entertained start to finish the way that i mean there was there was a uh, there were a few humorous passages in it, and I enjoyed them. But it's it was funny because they're they the book is overall so serious that I actually had it was a double take. I was like, oh, this is a joke. Oh, okay, I get it. I get this scene. This scene is funny. I see. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. It is relentless in its neutrality. It's it's hard to follow that tone for so long. And I, I think that even though um, it's not lecturing really i do still think it takes a proverbial tone like any sentence could feel like some piece of truth you know and it's hard to get used to the rhythm of that and to accept every sentence on that level it's just it's tiring so i i mean i think it's appropriate that it that it is short well let me let me read a little let me read something that uh chris abani wrote about uh achibi after achibi's death so achibi died uh earlier this year and chris abani who for those of you who don't know him uh is a nigerian writer uh, as well he um i should also note my bias and that he uh was a colleague of mine at uc riverside so i know him um and uh his he's most famous for his novel graceland um but at any rate he wrote an article in the washington post after achibi's death and he says something interesting here that i thought we might discuss he says every writer hopes to write the definitive book of their career but we all secretly hope that it is the last book we write before we pass on for chinway achibi this this remained true for his true fans, those of us who read everything he wrote, Arrow of God and Antles of the Savannah remain his best novels. And I've never read those novels. As an essayist, he excelled, and the last installment of his memoir was some of his best and most honest work. The unfortunate thing for Chiba is that Things Fall Apart eclipsed all his other work in terms of its reception and readership, and in many ways also eclipsed, eclipsed even its writer's name. This is both a blessing and a drawback for the creative artist because it means that most readers will never explore the amazing evolution of Achebe's work. But he remains beloved and deeply respected by every Nigerian because things fall apart, mark such a moment of cultural pride for us. Achebe changed the world's perception of continental Africa and Africans and gave every African writer who came after him a compass heading to steer forward from. As a writer, I have fought with Achebe, railed against the anthropological bent of some of his work, struggled with his complicated positioning of gender, chafed against his statements that were often presented as unassailable truths. 
tried to push things fall apart out of the sun a little. And then he concludes, I'm, I'm skipping forward a little bit, uh, and yet in the end, I have to admit that I did not only admire him at some level as a literary son, I loved him. Everything that I have described is the complicated struggle between father and son. And in the same way as it is with fathers and sons, I realize only after his death just how much I loved him. So, you know, I think some of the things, Ryder, that you're talking about um, and some of the things that, you know, maybe a reader coming to this book having known about it before reading it might struggle with, like the overwhelming message of it, the overwhelming mm -hmm. philosophical bent to it, or not philosophical, but mm -hmm. social bent to it. You know, you might feel that, but it's because I think also somewhat uh, that everything that came after it took from it as well. Totally. You know, mm -hmm. and yeah. I, I think that plays a role. Um, I was primed with so many of the ideas and, and, and themes or, or even just even characters and situations I was already primed for by growing up in the multi-culti generation in America, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the 20th century. Like, we were raised on Sesame Street, you know, where it was like, people from Africa are just like us, let's all hold hands. Like, but in 1958, I mean, we still had a segregated South, mm -hmm. for Christ's sake, you know? Yeah. Like, you, so when you think about how complicated a book like, how, 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 how much the world wasn't ready for a book like this, um, or was exactly ready, needed a book like this in 1958. It is pretty astounding. Um, but yeah, from my safe vantage point of, you know, and if anything, I've gone the other way because I grew up, I like entered college right when like the post-structuralist and deconstructionist and post-colonialism, like all that had was sort of phasing out finally after having ruled academia from the 70s yeah. into the late 90s and so i sort of personally went through this period of like oh everything is derrida at the beginning in my freshman year in college too like by the time i was finished like I, the thought of literary theory just made my skin crawl um and like reading another post-colonial essay was like no i don't want to you know yeah so like there there was a journey that i so I think that was part of the reason why I never got around to reading this book, too, is that it was like, all right, it it's there on the shelf. It's that defining book. And, um, and you know, so I, I am bringing all that baggage with me. Um, but I really like what he was saying, Abani. I really like what he was saying because that... Um, I think that there's a danger of, like, a form of essentialism in... Mm -hmm. um, in 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 when we elevate books like this, you know, when a book like this comes comes out, and you know, it's written by a Nigerian when English books were not being written by Nigerians, and, it, and it's like, oh my God, it's actually a good work of literature, and then it becomes to eclipse even his name mm -hmm. or him as a writer, and we stop thinking of him as an artist, and we we start thinking of him as like. Like, I even said the word obligatory about this book. Like, we start thinking of it as like, oh, well, just, it was it was bound to happen that somebody from, you know, this kind of experience would be able to write. And that's really bullshitty. And, I mean, that really takes away from him as an artist and as an individual and how he's engaging with not only his immediate culture, but then, of course, the culture of letters. And the danger, and Obani is, touches on this in his in what you just read, Todd, but um, the danger of a book that feels so essential like this is you feel like, you know, you spent four hours with this book and you've now done the African experience. You know, like, you're done. You get it. Um, right. And there's so many other great writers, but, I mean, they're so not well-known. I mean, I... So... Uh, in the news, in that um, in that mall tragedy in Kenya, um, one of the people that was gunned down was this unbelievable Ghanaian writer and diplomat um, whose books I've read. And this is like this is this writer is unbelievable. His name is Kofi Awunor, and he also writes in English. And he's um, his books are available, and they're amazing. And I just I kind of stumbled across his name as one of the victims and I felt like it had no I felt like I was alone in a chamber of knowing that like the world had lost a great writer to a tragedy you know wow. um and it's a it's a strange feeling because um African writers really don't get the ref they still don't get the recognition like can anyone you know listening here name five writers from africa like five any five right. alive or dead 
male or female, anything, you know. Right. Um, and I'm sure if you can, so you guys calm Even down. Even just naming five <laughs> African countries, for Christ's sake, refer to Africa as this cohesive thing. And it's like, you know how many countries are in Africa and how many different countries there are? But we're still like, oh, Africa, yeah. you know. You know what's also interesting um, about things fall apart? And I don't think I'd ever noticed it before. I, I of course, knew where the title came from. And it comes from uh, the Yeats the poem, The Second Coming, and it's at the front of the book. But that he takes a title from, um, he takes a title from what is a, you know, great British poet. Irish. To talk about, or Irish, I'm sorry, to talk about the colonization of... Another another land by the British Empire. Well, I think the Irish um, is, is, is important in that scenario. Do right. You know what I mean? Like, there's definitely an awareness of yeah. So if if you don't know the quote, I'll 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 read it for those of you out there in the world. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Um, and of course. Joan Didion uh, has has talked about the center not being able to hold as well. I think it it is the essence of literature. Things falling apart. I mean, that's what that's what we've been writing about for the last hundred years, really. About you know the the rise and fall of civilization, or maybe more than the last hundred years, last thousand years since you know since writing's been written in a, a narrative form. It's always about the rise and fall and uh, and the destruction of people and places and the, the winners and the losers, as Tom Petty once said. Um, so I, I think it's, th- this book, you know, it's, it's an important cultural touchstone. It's important to be read by, I think, everybody. I think kids probably don't learn the history of the colonization of Africa as much as they should. Um, but it's, it's important today because, the, as Ryder said earlier, it, it continues to be an issue across the world. Uh, the, coloniz- the colonization and the colonized um, dealing with the ramifications of of that, yeah. um, but more importantly, it's just a good story. You know, it's just a really good story, and it's it has relevance for people who don't like their fathers. Um, it has relevance for people who uh, accidentally or uh, intentionally kill things or beat things. Um, I I was not one looking for the humor in things fall apart. Um, I, I think it's one of those books that. It's 210 pages of intense, dramatic work, and sometimes um, that's just what I want. I just want to be pushed towards things with that inevitable sense of the adrenaline of despair. Could you say that again with more humor? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's Things Full Apart, ladies and gentlemen. A fantastic book. Not a lot of laughs, as it turns out, by... A man whose name we've pronounced 15 different ways. Do we have a do we have a singular way to pronounce it? Shinwei, Shinwa, Shinwa Echebe. Shinwa Echebe. We're we're taking the pronunciation, by the way, from a YouTube clip of Bill Moyers talking about him in 1980. So we could be completely wrong, and we apologize to the Chebe family uh, in advance. Yeah.